to another episode of Steve's Speed Shop, brought to you by Warranty Wise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by Mini Sports, specialising in the classic Mini since 1967. And we're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They sell Harley-Davidson's, lots of them, and very lovely they are too. Find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. Now, in 1964, the fastest four-seater car in the world wasn't Italian, French, German or American. Well, it was kind of American. It was a car made in West Bromwich, the Jensen CV8. The CV8 bit stood for Chrysler V8 and that massive, not a Hemi, a wedge-headed Chrysler V8 propelled that Jensen to 135 miles an hour. Now at the recent race retro show, I saw a sign on the stand that said, World's Fastest Jensen. And there it was, proudly bearing its battle scars from its recent outing on the Bonneville Salt Flats. I thought, I've got to get this guy on. His name's Ian Northeast, and he told me all about the World's Fastest Jensen. Ian, I always liked a Jensen CV8, but they didn't make many of them, did they? No, there was about 500 made back in the day, um, though bizarrely, um, because of the um, fibreglass nature of them, an awful lot of them have survived. Um, I believe the club knows of over half of them. How many of them are still on the road, I don't know, but that's that's quite impressive for a car of the 60s, yeah, on any standard. So it was made from, I think, 61 to 66. That sounds about right. And... Um... I, I first came across one when I was sat in, this is going to be only the second mention of Top Gear on this series, I think. <laughs> but I'm going to mention it. Um, I was helping to make a programme called The Cars, The Star. And it was presented by my friend and colleague, Quentin Two L's Wilson. but Because um, it's Wilson with two L's. And uh, he wasn't available all the time. So some of the interviews and some of the stuff was done by me. And we were in the studio, and I was watching back some footage, and there was Lord Carrington, who was then, I think, the third most senior person in the British government, uh, or he'd recently retired from that. He was the Foreign Secretary, wasn't he? And he was with his Jensen CV8, but it was a convertible. And I didn't realise that that was the only convertible that they ever made. Yeah, that's that, that's true. That car's still about, though, and still in... Still in uh, it's- well, it was still in the original family. Um, whether it's you know, where it still is now, I don't know. But um, it's you know, and it's never been restored. Looks well, really good. Got well, uh, <laughs> it has been restored. Well, no, it, okay. it, well, no. Um, but my point being that it's one of those cars that I had a pal who had a Lotus Carlton, and there's a reason that I'll mention this Lotus Carlton in a second. And he had that car effectively restored under warranty by Vauxhall. Because it had everything done to it, his car. It had a gearbox, it had a paint job. I mean, it just, <laughs> it would break and he would take, because he drove it and he, he put the hammer down. He drove it like you were supposed to. And it would break and he'd take it back and go, it's under warranty, fix it. Excellent. And I said to him, it's getting like Trigger's broom, this car. <laughs> He's killing himself <laughs> laughing. And that convertible that Lord Carrington had, if you look at the history of that car, and I have, it had everything. It had a paint job, it had a gearbox, 
at the factory. It went, you know, because... Yeah, that, 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 that sounds very much uh, in keeping with most of the cars. Well, um, it, it, the thing is, Ian, it, it's in keeping with most of those low-volume British... We call them sports cars or supercars. This was the fastest four-seater car in the world when it was made, wasn't it? It was. It was back in the day. Oh, yes. They, they were really quite something special. Um, you had to be mad to buy one. but, but um, <laughs> Well, Sean Connery had one, didn't he? He, he, he did. He did. But they, they were Rolls-Royce money at the time. So why you would not buy a Rolls-Royce, I don't know. Well, um, uh, right. You know. OK. So um, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the Persuaders. Now, I've not met you, but I've seen photos of you, and I'm estimating that you're a man of a certain age. Not quite the persuader's age. Not quite. Not quite. <laughs> I haven't aged particularly well. But, but do, you remember, <laughs> do you remember the TV show? Oh, yes. Yes, 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 most definitely. Because it was, it was a real... It was quite groundbreaking because I don't know if you know the reason that it got made. It's, it's to do with a Manchester man who, whose business, Granada Television, was located... In the next street to the one that I'm talking to you from now in central Manchester. Cool. And he was watching The Saint with Roger Moore, Roger Moore's pre-James Bond TV series. Yep. And there was a, a scene in the programme that was meant to be in the south of France. He pulled up in his, and here's the Jensen connection, in his Volvo P1800. He did. Which, of course, was made by I Jensen. Yeah. yeah because Volvo couldn't make a sports car, so the first ones were made in West Bromwich by Jensen. But he pulled up at a street sign, the Saints, Roger Moore, and it said something like, Nice, 14 kilometres, uh, Monaco, you know, whatever kilometres. Yeah. And it was so obviously Manchester <laughs> <laughs> that Sidney Bernstein spat out his Monte Cristo number four hey, and got on, the fo- got on the phone to his underlings and said, Right, we're going to make a proper TV programme, and we are going to make it in the south of France and around the world, and we're going to have proper film stars. And, of course, it ended up with Roger Moore and Tony Curtis. But there's, a, there's, a, there's another Jensen connection here, which is why it's such a good story for now. I've got a great photograph of Tony Curtis on the set of The Persuaders. And, of course, the opening sequence was Roger and Tony racing in an Aston Martin DBS and a Ferrari Dino. But it shows, this picture shows Tony Curtis arriving on set in his interceptor. Because, of course, in real life, that's what all these guys had. All these guys who were shown having sports cars in, on TV and in the movies actually had GTs because, you know, they wanted they had a lot a, of miles to do. <laughs> yeah, they had a lot of miles to do. They wanted a bit of comfort. They wanted air conditioning. They wanted all those things. But the CVA, although it was the fastest four-seater car in the world, courtesy of its giant Chrysler V8 and its lightweight body didn't have power steering or air conditioning did it not not back then not in the 60s no no that that was that was that was the big change for the interceptor it wasn't just a styling thing they did actually sort of turn it into the car it always should have been Ian are you an interceptor man is that how your passion for for Jensen started because with most Jensen enthusiasts it's all about the interceptor isn't it um, but for me, bizarrely, no, um, quite the opposite. Um, through through a sort of completely different walk of my life, um, I spent a lot of my time repairing Reliant, um, Robins and Rialtos, of all things. But not Scimitars? Uh, no, no, not Scimitars. Purely, mm. I was solely working on three-wheelers. Right, well, um, hold on a second. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to turn, turn Morse here 
and try and do a bit of detective work. I know you're a motorcycle man. So I am. So back in the day, and in my hometown, it was the case, you'd find that a motorcycle dealer also sold Reliance, but only the three-wheelers, because you could, in the UK, back in the day, you could drive a three-wheeler on a motorcycle licence. Yep, you got me. That's exactly how I became involved in Reliance. In fact, we used to use one as our company car. You know, when, when, when your bike broke down, I would hook up a trailer to my Reliant um, and then come and pick you up. Ian, uh, why do you think it is that a lot of motorcyclists of that older generation I, I, would, I wouldn't, hold on, wouldn't sure. take their car test? And I think I, I knew a couple who refused to. They were very competent motorcyclists, so presumably would have found a car an absolute doddle. But I've got a feeling they did it on, like, for ideological reasons. <laughs> uh, you, you're probably right, because, uh, yeah, the vast majority of them, particularly in the, in the sort of last few years, you know, of, of reliance, um, they, they're all gentlemen of a certain age, um, significantly older than both you and I. And, uh, yeah, you're right, they, they just point-blank refused. You know, I've been driving for 200 years, so I'm not going to start doing another test now just because the law's changed. Um, so they stuck with their reliance. Isn't it odd? <laughs> so, sort of the reliant, the three wheeler reliant, was kind of a Jensen CV8 in miniature. If you miniaturised everything, the engine, <laughs> the, the uh, amount, the amount of accommodation, because no. you've got. Well, no, it is, isn't it? Because it's only really, it's only really in the UK that we have, we had this, this whole, this whole lineup from the smallest to the largest of glass-fibre-bodied, ladder-chassied cars. We had the Gordon Keeble, the Reliance Scimitar, the Bond Bug, the Bond microcars as, as well as that, the Barclay, the Rochdale. Nowhere else in the world were they building... I've got, get this, I've got an Eagle SS. Have you ever, right, seen, one of, okay. have you ever seen one of them? Uh, I don't think I've ever seen one. Though. Well, do you remember the Nova, the thing with the VW engine in the back that looked like uh, it looked like a supercar, but it had a Volkswagen Beetle engine in the back? Do you remember them? Yes, yes. And it, it had a is, yeah. it had a canopy. There's, I don't think there's ever been a car like it. Instead of gullwing doors or scissor doors, the Nova, the whole cover <laughs> where you sat, lifted up and like it, a bug. Yeah, like a, it's yeah, similar to that. Well, I've got the Eagle SS, which I think is the same body. But with gullwing doors, right. just just to say, I paid twelve hundred quid for it. And the engine seized, but just to say that I own a car that has gullwing doors because people go, "Oh, what is it? Yeah. Is it?" <laughs> they get all excited because think it's a DeLorean. It's about is about the lowest down the food chain, and I go, "No, no, no! You come come way further down than a DeLorean." Yeah. And yeah. E- Eagle SS, it's got a seized two liter Pinto. If any any, the problem as well with that is the problem with that as well is Ian about. What if I bought that car in the nineties? There were no end. A two-liter Pinto. You probably if you turn round, you'd probably fall over one. But yeah, now, but now because they go in these Fords, these seemingly humble Fords that have just raced off into the stratosphere in terms of the value for some reason, which I'm not entirely sure of. Um, a two-liter Pinto is a hard thing. Somebody's probably got a suggestion as to what I should put in instead. But you ended up working on those little Reliance. And, well, and... That, 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 sort of, that, that was my introduction to fiberglass, because um, I'm not very good at welding. So <laughs> fiberglass is a lot easier to live with, um, hence the CV8. But it's like you say, 
a lot of them have survived because they didn't fall uh, victim to the terminal rot, which would afflict so many cars. Um, here in the, particularly here in the UK, perched as we are on the rim of the Atlantic. I went to um, a classic car gathering yesterday here in the northwest, and I was transfixed. There were all kinds of cars, all kinds of interesting car there, from a W.O. Bentley to... Um, I was well. I was going to think of something else, but the very latest Bentley with its okay. twenty—I think it was twenty-four-inch wheels on the thing. It was like wow. like the wheels on Ben Hur's chariot. But <laughs> on the end, an immaculate—and I mean immaculate—I mean like better than new Lancia Beta. Wow! And I thought, really, in the UK? Yes, in the UK. And, A and true I thought, British car, though. Or... Yeah. And I thought, what? Yes, because it was right on drive. And I thought, wow, because I had one of them. I had. I had the Volumex, which, if you remember, was the supercharged two-litre. And uh, rot. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't even begin to describe the way that that car rusted. And yet here was an immaculate example. But, of course, a lot of those... I've just got rid of my SE5 scimitar, and I've still got an SE6. So I'm familiar with how well-preserved these things are. My SE6... I saw it on um, Facebook Marketplace, and it was just down the road from me here in uh, in the northwest. And it had been not only it had been sat on top of a shipping container for seven years. They'd only picked it up to put the shipping container in the spot where it had been parked since 1986. Wow. Okay. 1986. And we've just rubbed it down to paint it, and the fiberglass is in absolutely fantastic order. I mean, you just the chassis is not that great. There has there has had to be a bit of welding, but the fiberglass is in absolutely superb order. Nearly four decades, because of course the worst thing you can do to a car is park it outside and not move it. Yeah, and right. it's uh, and it's just it's it's ridiculously good condition. So. I believe the car that you got had been one owner from new, and then it had been, that it had been parked up for a long time, hadn't it? Uh, well, no, actually, uh, quite the opposite. The, 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 I bought it from the son of the original owner. It had sort of been around the family, um, but he'd managed to keep it on the road pretty much every year. All right. However... And it it was high, to... high miles as well, wasn't it? Uh, oh, yes, yes. The car's done... Uh, now it's done about 300,000. It had done 250 when I bought it. Wow. Um, but what he'd done, he was a bit of a DIY expert. Um, um, I use the term expert sort of semi-loosely here. <laughs> um, he would rent a, a ramp at a local garage and do whatever it needed to do to get it through its next MOT. Um, and, you, you know, you can just see the list of advisories getting longer and longer every year. Um, but it, it would always pass. It would do about 200 miles a year. That was all. It was, it was yeah, I think he was just keeping it to keep his dad happy. Um, but, uh... Yes, um, yeah, it wasn't sort of stored, stored, but equally it wasn't used properly. Yeah, but here's, here's the thing. It's, one of the reasons it survived is because it's not some crazy... It, it got its 300 horsepower, from not from some insanely complex quad-cam European thoroughbred motor, but from a dirty, great Chrysler V8 engine and a, a three-speed torque-flight gearbox, yeah? That's correct, that's correct. And, I, I've, I, it's, it's always amazed me that the Americans um, have managed to get so little power out of such a big engine. <laughs> um, but hey, hold on. Say, it's why it survived. Hold on. But, yeah, I'll, again, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the best example of that. I had um, a Pontiac Trans Am Turbo. Right. 
turbo, a turbo Trans Am. Go on. Pearl white with a squawking budgie on the bonnet. <laughs> deep buttoned velour interior. Oh, you're really selling this. And a, a fisheye aluminum, as they would say. <laughs> or we'd say aluminium. Dashboard. Five litre V8 turbo. 150 brake horsepower. <laughs> How'd you do that? Exactly. How'd you get that little power? From that much capacity and a blinking turbo. And that thing was deadly because it was a heavy car. It was a slow car. But when the turbo kicked in, it it did have a bit of urge, but it had always come in at exactly the wrong moment. (laughs) When I met met my partner, we were talking about cars because she's got got an interest in cars. And she said, oh, I had this uh, I had this car. You'll never have heard of it. <laughs> this I said, and I ended up saying, not only have I heard of it, I've owned one. <laughs> and she was absolutely gobsmacked. I said, I'll prove to you that I've owned one. Every time you were making a right turn or a left turn in the rain and you had to get a move on, you'd end up spinning. And she said, she just slapped the table and went, absolutely, because, of course, you know, it had... Americans like value for money, don't they? Which is one of the oh, reasons that, that engine and gearbox combination has gone on for so long. And it's the same with tyres. I always noticed that if I bought an American car in the UK, and I, I used to work for an American car magazine here in the UK, so I drove a lot of American cars. I'd do burnouts at a Buick or an Oldsmobile or something like that. Get out of it. Touch the tyres. Stone cold. Yep. And, of course, the, the, you know, they wanted they wanted 30,000 miles out of the damn things, didn't they? You know, yeah, they didn't grip, yep. Yeah, it was like, no, we don't, we're, not, we're not going to be going around any corners. So just make sure that they last. So when you got the car, did you just did you just think, I really like that, I'm going to buy it, I'm going to drive it around, I might go to the car show? Or w- w- was this the idea that we'll come to in a minute, was that always there? Uh, no, no. Uh, originally the intention was, all, all I wanted was a a classic British car that was older than me. Um, there, there is just something about driving around in a car that is, you know, that predates you. Um, and I guess it's the motorcyclist in me, but the idea of having a car with a stupid amount of power um, always appealed. But obviously I couldn't afford all the proper ones, you know, your Jags and your Astins and all the rest of it, because they were just crazy money. Um, and Jensen's, I mean, at the time, and still are, ridiculously underpriced. Um, so no, I bought it as a daily runner. Um, and in fact, used it as a daily runner for many years. Yeah, but it... <laughs> what? <laughs> right, what's the MPG, Ian? Uh, Come well, on. I, I, okay, I, I, when I say daily, daily runner, I will caveat that with I walk to work. Um, I am in the fortunate position. I don't actually need a car at all. Uh, I mean, I've got five, but I don't need one. Um, so uh, I, don't, I don't get to, uh, yeah, I don't do loads of miles. But yes, at its best, I think I got 18. At its best, and that that's, was on a nice long motorway. That's run. pretty good because it is because it, I think there were there were three iterations of the CVA. Is is it the one with the six point three in it? it yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It had a the, the Mopar three eight three, as I think as I think they call it. And, and it's which is it's n- it's not as many people think a Hemi. The cries the Hemi. Uh, is no, it? no, 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 no. So it's, it's convertible. <laughs> I I um when I as the aforementioned American car magazine that I was working on, Classic American, they sent me to, they sent me to meet an AA recovery man. Uh, he was one of these, the knights of the road who turn out to try and, well, these days when I talk to guys who do that sort of job, they always say that it's um, people have run out of fuel or they can't change, um, they can't change a wheel. And there's yep. a pet hate of mine. 
change a tyre. Can you change a tyre? I go, yeah, if you've got a tyre changing machine and, you know, they, they mean a wheel. Why do people say that? Change, yeah, yeah. change the wheel. <laughs> you don't say if you've got a spare tyre in the boot. Yeah, it's attached to a wheel. Yeah, which makes it even easier to change. Exactly. But um, So I went out to see him and he had um, a car which was one of the stupidest cars I've ever driven. Uh, and one of the most interesting, because I think it revealed a lot about a nation's psyche, and it was a Dodge Coronet. Okay. And it had the giant Hemi with the six-pack carburetor um, option on it, and um, just a, a three-speed manual, uh, three on the tree, bench seat, no seat belts of any description. Get this, drum brakes all round. This this guy had gone into a showroom, into a Dodge showroom in 1963 or whatever it was, and only ticked one box on the... <laughs> on, they'd given him the sheet and gone, there you are, sir. And he'd looked at it and it said radio, engine, radio car, carpets, maybe disc brake option for the front, I'm not sure, uh, you know, strut braces, all kinds of stuff. And he'd gone, nope, nope, nope. And then he got to the end, which engine do you want? The largest and most powerful one. And they've gone, absolutely no problem. So just plain paint, hardly any chrome, no carpets, not even, no seatbelts, but the most powerful production engine you could specify at that time on a car anywhere in America. But over here, if a car was endowed with the sort of performance that the CV8 had, then they were quite concerned. So it had, if I'm, you'll tell me if I'm wrong, Ian, Discs all round and adjustable rear suspension. It did, it did. It actually had a, 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 it never, it never worked in my car, but it did have selectorized rear suspension. So the knob on the dashboard is on the centre console, actually, um, and you could adjust to your rear suspension as you drove. Um, that's that's the level of luxury you're how really many, at. How many people got in that car and went, "Oh, can you?" And you went, "Yeah, that don't work." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, most people didn't know what the knob was for so <laughs> yeah well there you go so and and did you did you cash in at any time on the uh on the sort of classic did you think right this car is going to be valuable now or or as you say as it did it always remain undervalued in the time that you had it so I mean, Jensen's still are. I mean, certainly if you compare them to their compatriots, as I say, the, the Jaguars or the Astons, they're still ludicrously underpriced. Why but, do you think that is? Uh, I honestly don't know. I, I think if there was always always a snobbery about using an American engine. Um, and um, the build quality was... Um, I, I'm not sure it was any worse than anything else, but they, they just had a, had a reputation... And equally, and, and I believe this is something that is sort of quite commonly mentioned, particularly in the club, that Jensen, and this, this is coming back to something you mentioned earlier, um, their advertising, rather than going racing or doing anything spectacular, they would encourage um, uh, uh, sports stars and personalities and celebrities to buy them. Uh, and then so they always got seen outside swanky hotels and restaurants and what have you. Um, but they were they were sold as, as as your sort of your thinking man's GT car rather than some lunatic sort of racing car, um, and I think there's always been something in the Brits that you know if, if it's not racing then it, it's not the one you want, um, and that's possibly the difference between Jaston, uh, Jaston, sorry, Jaguar and Astons. Yeah, I think 
The CV8 was the last car that the Jensen brothers, the two men that founded the Jensen company, had anything to do with. They they, they went off in a huff after this car. That's, that's exactly I, what happened. Because I think I think they thought the Interceptor was was too big and too slow and 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 too too GT. Not enough G and too much T. Yeah. Can, you know. <laughs> so they quit. They were like, you know, they were like, no, no, we should have made a smaller, faster car after the CVA, and it was like, no, no, we're going to make a... It's funny, isn't it, how these car companies, the guy who started it, I think, well, not I think, but the guy who started Oldsmobile had to leave almost straight away. And, and, and of course, because the money man said, no, 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 you're an idiot, you don't know what you're doing. And that's, <laughs> that's how they ended up with the REO Speedwagon, because it was random Eli Olds, and he, he left almost straight away. And there was a, there was a it's the same in, with anything to do with cars and bikes, I think. There was a famous um, car dealership here in Manchester called Bauer Millet, who, that was, if you were a celeb and you had any money in the 70s, 80s or 90s, that was where, like, Robbie Williams bought his first sports car and stuff like that. And um, I got to know the, well, I got to know the guy who I knew as the owner, Lawrence Millet, and I said, so, you know, how long was it Bauer Millet for? And he said, oh, about a month. And then Mr. Mr. Bauer left. <laughs> and I said, but you've been here 30 years. And he went, yeah, with the guy's name over the door, you know. <laughs> Even though he was only there for a month. And then he ran again for another 30 years. So when did you think, right, okay, um, let's do something with this car and, and instead of just driving around in it? And, and what was that? Okay, that's right. So what? The way it started, not long after I bought the car, probably about a year in, um, the model, the, the CV8 itself, um, was having its 45th birthday. Um, and the owner's club were, or somebody in the owner's club, had organised an event in Trier in Germany, um, which is a lovely bit of the country, um, and an ideal place to get to in your GT car. Basically, you just drive through Belgium and you're there. Um, so I, I went out there just because it was a chance to drive my car to be honest with you, that, that was simply it. Uh, and as part of this, um, the Germans, God bless them, had organised a trip round the Nürburgring. Uh, now, the car, as I say, was rough, uh, to say the least. Um, I'd, I'd sort of been, in, been sort of replacing the suspension, updating it, and just generally you know, in, improving it. Um, I wasn't sort of sportifying it. I was just uh, renewing the fact that it had done 250,000 miles, you know, new bushes and stuff. Uh, so, you know, we got out there and I whacked it around the Nürburgring for the very first time, had an absolute hoot, and then within a year I started sprint racing <laughs> in, in the car. Um, and I took particular pride in that I would drive to a racetrack, ran it around a racetrack, you know, for as, you know, the three or four minutes that I'd have out there, um, and then drive home again. Um, and I took, you know, great, great pleasure and, pleasure and pride in the fact that I just kept the car on the road, um, yeah, it was always road legal. So uh, let me let me let me guess that you, when you say that you would have been going to circuits like Kerbera. Uh, uh, yes, funny enough, I did go. I did go to Kerbera. Right, so I mean, right here's my point. Go on. I'm I've been round Kerbera on um, a Suzuki Hayabusa. And I didn't get out of second. I just left it in second. I, I started in first, got it in second, did a lap, and then thought I only need second for this circuit. And it was such a short circuit with so many turns that after about three laps, I was absolutely exhausted. I kept going. Uh, the guy from Suzuki that brought the brought the bike thought it'd be amusing to stand on the sort of little bit of a pit wall with a brush and shovel 
as, as I went past. He thought that was funny. <laughs> Think, because he said, because you look so ragged out there. And I said, and this is my point, it, that bike shouldn't have been on that circuit. That circuit's for something like a Caterham or a 125cc supermoto super bike. The CV8 must have been a right handful on these little circuits. Oh, yeah, no, you're absolutely spot on. Uh, I mean, one of, one of the bizarre things about the, the, the certainly the sprint racing class I was in and so on was there was, there was no age relation. Uh, I was simply in a two-wheel drive over two-litre class, um, and I had by far and away the biggest car. There, there was one, one event, it, it wasn't Kerbera, but it was at an airfield somewhere, and in the pits, they went around and they, they, were, they measured the front of my car, which I thought was a bit odd, the width. And then I noticed that there was a particularly long straight on this thing, and they'd, they'd added a, uh, uh, a chicane you know, with cones at this, at this sprint event. Uh, and literally, it was two inches wider than my car, because my car was the widest <laughs> one there. <laughs> which really ruined the straight, I've got to say. <laughs> But the, I still didn't hit it. Was, was <laughs> it the first? Uh, was this? We're, go, we're going backwards. We should be going forwards. But I, I just need to ask: Was it the first British car with disc brakes all round? Uh, it, its predecessor was the the, the five four one Jensen. Right. Um, but uh, yes, the, you know the, uh, the the CV8 did have you know four wheel discs back when um, you know I don't think anything else. They were just sort of creeping into the front of your average car. Um, it was only special stuff that had them up until that point. So, Ian, it's a long way, both geographically and sort of in your head as well, from Kerbera to Bonneville. Yes. But, <laughs> but, but that's where you ended up. It, it, it is, it is. How um, did that happen? Uh, well, uh, a number of things. Uh, I, I got myself in with a dodgy crowd. Um, I was an education ambassador for the Bloodhound Project. Um, and... Uh, when you hang around with those guys... Hold on, Ian, you you should briefly explain what the Bloodhound Project is. Most people will know, but some won't. Okay, dogs. all right. So this is the the Bloodhound Land Speed Record car um, that at the time was targeting 1,000 miles miles an hour um, with uh, a jet engine and a rocket motor. Um, And primarily, all I was doing, um, I was interested... Obviously, the engineering of the car was, was very interesting, but... Um, as a tool to inspire uh, youngsters to get into um, the STEM subjects, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, because when you turn up at a school and start talking about a jet-powered rocket car, everybody listens to you, <laughs> and they've always got a question. Um, and it, it, it just engages absolutely everybody, you know, from the teachers, the teaching staff, and more importantly, the kids themselves. So when was the eureka moment? When did you think, hold on a minute, I know what I'm going to do? Uh, well, th- that was probably about five years ago. I was um, I- enjoying a, a, a quiet drink with some friends. Um, ah, <laughs> like every good idea, it started in the pub. <laughs> like every good idea and like every bad idea, it started in the pub. Yes, I'm still not sure which one of those two this actually is yet. But, but anyway, um, yes, exactly. The conversation was, how fast does your car go? So I answered the question. Um, and then it was, how fast could you make it go? And as I walked home from the pub that evening, my brain went into overdrive. I don't think I slept for two or three days because I started thinking, how fast could I make my car go? Um, and so then very quietly, and I, I, I wasn't, I was doing this, but I wasn't telling anybody what I was up to. Um, I started modifying the car 
with some sort of top speed challenge in mind. Um, and to be fair, Bonneville Speed Week was always the target, um, just because uh, when I was a kid, that was the place to be. Um, I'm sure we've all seen the world's fastest Indian. Well, and, um, and for motorcyclists as well, and for motorcycling, we, we both are, and a lot of people who listen to this show are, um, the Triumph Bonneville. It's like you thought, you, when you heard that name, you thought, oh, what's all that about? And then yeah. you, you read in some old book that you found in, in the library, because, you know, you'd probably like me as a kid, if you went in the library, you went straight to the section that had books about motorbikes. <laughs> There'd be three or, three or four books. So you'd read in the the big book of British bikes, and it'd say, in 19, was it 1957, Johnny Allen uh, broke the world speed record uh, at Bonneville on a Triumph yeah, engine. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's um, how times changed. There was uh, somebody who worked at the BBC back in the day said to me that the government interceded to free that bike from customs so that it could be on the BBC that night. Oh, wow. He said um, they got a call from the Minister of Industry who said uh, who called up the customs because the bike came back from Bonneville and it was still in its crate covered in salt and all that sort of stuff and they wanted it to be on Friday night lineup with Ernest Marples or something like that <laughs> on the BBC and um, they said uh, no no it's got to clear customs so Edward Turner the the guy that designed the Bonneville engine yep. apparently called the BBC and called managed to get through to like the minister of industry and said if this bike isn't on television, it'll be a blow to Britain's motorcycle industry. And so they just went, right, all, all, waves, all rules are waved, and the bike ended up being on the TV. But I just thought it was an interesting story because there was a time when somebody very senior in government would, uh, actually, cared, yeah. would actually care about the British motorcycle industry. Yeah, yeah, so those days are long gone. And... and the BBC would actually care about the British yeah, sure. yeah. As a yeah, man who spent the best part of 11 and a half years trying to persuade the BBC to spend more time on motorcycles, it was, uh, it was quite... But, you know, sales, sales were far, of bikes were far more important. I've just seen the, uh, the latest figure for sales in the UK, and I'm not even going to say it out loud because it's a bit frightening. Uh, but there we go. Let's go back to let's go back to nice cars at, at anyway, Bonneville. Yes, yes, yes. So how so, do you how do you plan for something like that? Because you know, who do who do you ask for advice? Yeah, well, that's 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 the question, um, and that was the, that was the problem. Um, though, though, interestingly enough, um, via the Bloodhound Project, um, one of the very first people I spoke to, um, I sent an email to uh, Richard Noble, um, Landspeed Record Holder, ex Landspeed Record Holder. Um, and I sent him a photo of my car because I thought he's never going to know what this thing is, and I told him what I was thinking of, and he sent me a lovely... Uh, considering how busy he was, he sent me a sort of three- or four-page answer, um, including loads of sort of clips to YouTube links of cars crashing at Bonneville um, and explaining why they crashed and how to get around it and so on and so forth. And then he came back and he said, it's a brilliant idea, thoroughly encourage it, I really like what you want to do, but that's the wrong car to do it in. <laughs> Is ah. <laughs> anything but that car? Well, yeah, because um, you don't want to roll a fiberglass car if it's at all possible. Presumably, well, I know for a fact yours has got a big cage in it because you've got an excellent website. Just tell people what your website is, please. Right. Aim. So the, the the website is very unoriginally uh, worldsfastestjensen.co.uk because um, I do we we do hold that 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 honour um, at the moment. Um, no, no, nobody's nobody can prove faster. <laughs> 
So, as, as stock, uh, a Mark III, fastest four-door car in the world in its time in the mid-60s, it would have been doing about 135 miles an hour on a good that, day. That yeah. was the advertised top speed. So Go on, what was that, the real top speed? Uh, well, I, I never got mine over 120. Um, not, not on, you know, that, no, to be honest, that was on a racetrack. Um, so I didn't, there wasn't a huge, huge, great run-up for it. Was it on wires, yours? Uh, no. No, it, it had some rather hideous steel wheels. I was. I, I tell you what, they, they might be hideous in, but I'd much rather be on old steel wheels than old wires. Oh, definitely. I, I've had. <laughs> I've driven a lot of very old cars in my time, and very old wire wheels. <laughs> yes, yeah, they they look pretty, and that's about as far as it goes. Well, they were never they, when when the, whoever laced them was doing it, they didn't think, yeah, we'd better make sure that these are still safe and good for 100 years or however long people would... Oh, you know, they, they thought people had used them for maybe 10 years, and they, they were fine for that, but... Yeah, yeah no, 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 I, I, yeah, I've got some wires on one of my other cars, and you're right, it's, um, it's interesting, and uh, there's usually one snap. When you, yeah, when, you, when you have your regular check, you go, oh, look, there's another one. <laughs> Yeah, and then you think they do look pretty, but how about these hideous steel wheels that are made of steel, which yes, is exactly. <laughs> solid steel, which is a very reliable, uh, re- very reliable material, and they probably won't be porous like a lot of old. There's nothing worse than old magnesium wheels. Again, they never imagined that people they go, oh, it's got these, it's got these rare magnesium wheels, but they're porous, and I go, well, yeah, because they're made of magnesium. They, 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 they thought about three to five years of use, and then they assumed that they'd be. People would throw them away because the next great thing would come along. This, what we're doing and what we're talking about now, what we talk about virtually every week on this radio show, people didn't think we'd do it. They thought, they didn't imagine when they built that Jensen CVA, it was made the same year I was born, they didn't imagine people would still want, not only still want to be driving it around, but they didn't imagine that you, Ian, would want to drive it at 200 blinking miles an hour. Well... Yeah, no, you're right. Because <laughs> <laughs> you so can I, get... You know. I, I know I've been to Bonneville myself. I've been very fortunate to have gone over there and seen what goes on. It's a wonderful place. It is a wonderful place. I and encourage I, everybody to go out there. Exactly. And I know from... So did you stay in Wendover when you went there? Uh, no, 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 no. Because um, that's, an, that's, an pl- that's an odd place. Where did you stay then? Well, yeah, I mean, you're right. Wendover itself is completely mad, but... Um, through a very long-winded story, which I won't bore you with, um, we were camping because um, it was I'd spent all of my money on the car and getting the car to and from Bonneville. So you were um, camping out on the salt? Yep, we were literally Good camping grief. on the salt. Good wow. grief. I rented a caravan, um, and I'd rented a caravan from somebody in Salt Lake City, um, and it, it was sold over the internet as a, a five-berth caravan. Um, and I think if one of them was Snow White... Then the other four is the only thing I found in America that was smaller than expected. <laughs> um, but but we ended up we we I was I was, arrived at Bonneville a couple of days before Speed Week um, and was so excited as soon as I drove past the sign I drove to onto the salt because you know because I had to really um, for an almost religious experience driving onto the salt for your very first time. I'm sure you know you've been there. You know yeah. exactly what I mean. It's amazing. Um, but as, as we came back, I was actually looking for somewhere to park my car on its trailer while I went off to pick up my massive, huge, great, tiny little caravan. Uh, and um, at the bend in the road was 
um, a bunch of old guys, and these guys have been meeting at the bend, of, at the bend in the road for over 30 years, and they just sit there, um, seem to continually drink from you know, dawn till dusk. Um, if they see something interesting go past, they may go onto the salt to watch it race. Um, but generally, it's just a social event for these good old boys, for want of a better word. No, wrong and with that. They refused to let us camp anywhere else. <laughs> that we, we instantly became members of the Bend in the Road gang. Um, and <laughs> uh, we were, you know, they cleared a space for us, and that's where the caravan went. They looked after the car while we went off to, to get it. Um, everybody was greeted with a cold beer. <laughs> Again, regardless of time of day. <laughs> Which is a bit ropey when you've just had breakfast. But, we, yeah. Despite what people say, that, that, that is almost exactly my experience of Bonneville. Despite what people say, when you bowl up and they find out that you're British, there is, there is a special relationship. Oh, most definitely. Most we, definitely. We, we get on. When I was there, we met these guys who... We, we did stay in Wendover, which is the crazy town by the, by the Salt Lake, um, which is half in Utah and half in Nevada. So the Utah half is all white picket fences and American flags on the lawn and nice, neat houses. And then the second you cross over into Wendover, Nevada, it's like Sin City, baby. And it's instantly that you cross over. And yet it's the same town. It's such an odd place. But we met these guys who were, um, they were having a reunion. They were all submariners. They were all U.S. Navy submariners. And we partied and drank with them. And we we had a a great time. We had a fantastic time when we were. I can imagine that's, yes. I mean, it. Because, you know, these guys at the Bend in the Road were all Vietnam vets. Um, and, you know, literally, they, the stories they had, you know, how true they were, I don't, I don't, I don't care, to be honest. They yeah, who cares? Stories. <laughs> so here's the thing that I noticed about Bonneville as well. Um, there are people there who come back every year for decades, some of them, yep. in pursuit of a very obscure record. We met a guy, and he'd been going there, and I think he told us it was either his 22nd or 23rd year at Bonneville. Wow. In a Citroen DS. <laughs> modified beyond all recognition. Because, of course, what he would do is he'd set a time, then he'd go back to whichever part of the States, he was an American, whatever parts of the state he was from, spend a year modifying the car, come back, beat his own record, go home, more modifications for the car, come back, Oh, once again, he's the only guy in the European four-door cars made between 1959 and 1965 and under 2.5-litre class. But he didn't care. All he was bothered about was two things. One, driving on the salt, and two, beating his record. Constantly improving the car, trying to beat a record that only he would ever attempt. Did did you find that? I mean, what what category were you in in the CV8? Well, we, we were in the um, gas-powered, i.e. petrol, um, I think they call it competition coupe, um, which... Um, That's a bit harsh, you're not a coupe, you've got four doors and a... Yeah. And a yeah. No, two doors. Oh, yeah, it's a two, it's a four-seater, but it's a two-door, isn't it? All right, yeah, yeah, well, okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They, 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 they put me in there, because also um, there has to be a minimum of 500 cars made. Um, <laughs> it, also, it all, they it just all got very complicated. <laughs> well, did did you did you not 
Look, say, look on Wikipedia, it says they made 500 cars. Yeah, I think well, it says around 500, doesn't it? Or exactly, like. yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, I, mean I will be honest, the, the, the only time the class thing comes up is if you break a record. And unfortunately for me, or fortunately for me, um, because I've got such a huge, great engine, um, all of the really sexy records have all gone. The, uh, the really big-engined records. Well, are you'd now... be. I, I remember I was there, and there was a Studebaker Avanti, which presumably would run in the same class as you, and yep. that was doing crazy speeds. Yeah, I mean, they, I think the record in my class is nearer two hundred and seventy than two hundred. So, and that's just. I mean, it, it, it comes down to money, time, experience, mm. and all the things I haven't got. So. The first time that you went, how many of you were there? What 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 sort of team did you have with you? Was it just you? Uh, no, 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 no. Um, I I was very fortunate. I I had so many of my friends, um, and this is a like-minded thing. Um, just thought, yeah, no, this is an opportunity to go and yeah, because going to Bonneville as a spectator is a wonderful, wonderful experience. Going to Bonneville as a competitor just takes the whole thing to a whole nother level whether you're driving or just spannering or indeed just making the tea um being part of a team and out there and involved in the racing is such a special such a special special event it's a gamble um, though isn't it because there's no guarantee that the weather will hold and you'll get to run yep no that's that's the, that's the whole thing i mean i i I had decided that when we went out, which was 2018, I mean, we were, we were exceptionally lucky, the weather. The, the salt was the best it's been for a very long time, um, and the weather was just irritatingly hot. Um, but I'd already sort of decided that if we got out there and it was rained off, then there's another event in October. So the plan was to just turn around, fly home again, um, leave the car out there somewhere. I had no idea where at the time. At the bend in the road. Hold on, those good old boys would have probably taken it out onto the salt by the time you came back oh, and had, no, had a terrible accident. <laughs> if they could have got in it, they'd have, ridden, they'd have driven it. <laughs> yeah. So you, you were lucky you had a good year. What yeah. did you What did you realise you hadn't prepared for back in the southeast of England when you were when you were developing the car and getting it ready when you actually got there onto those those dry... Hey, uh, one of the things I was going to mention as well, the curvature of the earth. Because yeah. as Brits, as most people have never seen it, and you get there and you think, and, and they explain to you, go, look, that's the curvature of the earth. And you see it for the first time in your life and you're like, whoa! Exactly, whoa! Exactly what happens. <laughs> yeah. It just, it just blows your mind. It, it does. Really does. It really does. Anyway, back to the question. What yeah. was Sorry about that. But I was no, just right. I was just thinking how, like, how <laughs> mind-blown I was when I realised that you could... It's one of the few places on the planet where you actually can see how the planet really is, which is a sphere. But anyway, um, what was the thing you thought, oh, we didn't plan for this? Um, yeah, to be honest with you, it was really only the heat. And, and again, we, we knew it was going to be hot. Uh, you know, it's a, it is a desert after all, but... The temperature was around 90 to 100 degrees most of the time, um, and it would drop down to a, a pleasant sort of 70 at night, um, which is not great when you're, when you're camping. So presumably you'd dynoed the car back in the UK to set it up? You'd think so, wouldn't you? 
Yes, Ian. Right, okay. Well, here's the thing I was going to say. That would almost be irrelevant because, of course, you get to the altitude that you're at there, uh, which is going to be different to the altitude you're at here. And, of course, the temperature of the air that's coming into the engine is going to be radically different from that that's going to be in a shed just outside Marlow or sort of Slough or somewhere like, you know, wherever you wherever you take the ticket to on the dyno when, yeah, you, when you get to the salt flats. They, 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 um, the altitude when we first got there was the big issue. Um, on my first two runs, I couldn't get the car over 4,000 RPM. Um, that was it. It just felt like somebody just stuffed a cotton wall into the inlet manifold. Um, it just, you know, bearing in mind it's red line at six and a half um, in its current, or it, sorry, in its then state. Um, and literally it would, it would sort of pull up to sort of three and a half and then you could just about squeeze it to four. Um, so that, in, that engine was never headlining at six and a half back in 1964, that big no, prize. No, I, I have, cu- I have um, carried out a few subtle modifications. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I've massively strengthened the bottom end, um, stroked it out to 8.2 um, and fitted a multi-point fuel injection system. Um, and the most ridiculous lump, lumpy cam you've ever seen. It's not still on points, is it? Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> I have actually met people who've done all of those things, and I've gone, and they go, "No, no, it's still on points." So, what? <laughs> really? yeah. but no, no. So um, the the other thing, what about tyres? Because anyone else, tyres and salt lakes seem to be getting that right. Seems to be a much higher percentage of getting a good run than I think in any other kind of motorsport. You know, tyres are massively important in virtually every arena of motor racing and motorsport, whether it's two wheels, four wheels, or even three wheels. But there, talking to people, tyres seem to be a complete obsession. Yeah, that was... One one of the issues you have, as as a Brit, when you start reading the rules, um, they're rubbish. All right. (laughs) The rules are so open to interpretation... Um, that it's very easy to get it wrong, um, which we did. Um, I sort of read through the rules, and my, my understanding of the rules was that I could get away with these particular tyres. Um, at the time, I couldn't afford super-duper racing tyres, so because um, I think they were the, the ones I was looking at that were guaranteed over 300, I think. They were nearly £1,000 each, Oof. these tyres, so that wasn't happening. Right. Um, so I'd sort of taken a much cheaper option. And when I went through tech inspection, right at the start, um, this guy, he said, I'm not sure about these tyres. And I showed him where they were in the, in, the, in, in the rules. And he said, yeah, he said, we're going to have to limit your top speed. Um, now, I'd had all sorts of tuning issues before we went, which is why we didn't even get to the dyno. Um, and I knew that absolutely flat out in the world's most perfect run, my car was good for 170 when we were out there in 2018, if everything had been perfect, with, you know, with the things we'd had to sacrifice at the last minute. Um, and he said, yeah, no, those tyres are no good. Right, you can't go over 200. I was <laughs> absolutely devastated. How long did you manage to fake being disappointed for? Five minutes? Um, <laughs> Just long enough to get out of tech inspection? Yeah, basically, yeah. So the thing about Bonneville, it seems to me, talking to... You're making me want to... I, I, I'm, I'm having a flashback. I went to make a film. I didn't, didn't go to compete. We actually did get to drive 
on the track, but um, should I even say that? We did. Those guys from the Southern California Timing Association are great. I, I, I've been round the world and had and butted heads with official done when I've wanted to film in a pit lane or a pit garage or on the track or whatever. And I've shouted at people in France and I've shouted at people in Germany and I've shouted at people. But those guys were so cool. You could you could see that they knew exactly what they were doing. They've done it so many times now. How long's Bonneville been running for? Oh, I believe it's the, the FCTA have been running it since the sixties, I believe. Yeah, they they knew what they were doing and we'd yep. say, Would it be okay if we did this? And they'd go, mm, yeah, okay. You know, yeah, you could do that. Because yep, they, they they seem to get it, and, and again, like you're saying with the technical inspection, I think everyone has seen the world's fastest Indian, the Anthony oh, Hopkins movie where he plays Burt Munro, the Kiwi who went there with his Indian streamliner bike, and they've seen how the Americans take it to their heart. I think that's, it's obviously sentimentalised for Hollywood, but I think it's pretty accurate, because that was kind of our experience. We... We found people who actually, instead of wanting to stop people from racing, which sometimes you think, are these people trying to stop people from racing? You know, because yep. the rules and the sort of bureaucracy and the and the, the 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 barriers that they put between people and the racing. There, it seemed to be, we are here to get you on the track if it's at all possible. We're not going to let you out there if you're going to, you know, in death trap. But if there's a way to bend the rules a bit, then we're going to get you out there. I'm not sure it's quite as extreme as the Burt Munro thing where he cut his tyres off or cut the tread off his tyres. But, um, yeah, no, we, we had exactly the same experience. Um, they didn't like my wheel nuts. I don't want to go into detail. Um, but the tech, <laughs> really? the tech inspector supplied me a set of nuts and said, just make sure these are on the car next time I see it. They are. The um, guy said those won't do, and his solution was, here are some that will. Yeah, Whereas, exactly. you know, how yeah. many other places, how many other places, the, the only other place that I can think of that comes to me straight away where that would happen is the Isle of Man, the TT. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah. And, and I find a great connection between the, the feelings, like you're saying. I've had people say to me, after they did their first practice session at the Isle of Man on the course, on the mountain course, in tears, tough, tough men, some of the toughest men you'll find on this planet, in tears at the yeah, end of the first... Because you'd spent your whole life thinking, you know, since being a small boy, and like at the start of our conversation, going in the library and seeing a picture of Stanley Woods or Mike Hellwood or someone like that racing at the TT, and then 20-odd years later, these guys are on the course, actually on a bike. And, you know, the emotion, and I think Bonneville is such an extreme place, like you said, the altitude, the heat, just the the unrealness of the salt flats. Like, you've never been anywhere like it in your life. It's it's so hard. It's just so hard to process what's going on. And it makes people emotional. Yeah, oh, oh, it does. It does, definitely, 100%. Um, I mean, I, the, the, the bizarre thing, or well, one of the things we notice, I say it's bizarre, I don't, I've become, come to the realisation that it's not bizarre, and it's probably very much like the TT, there's absolutely no competition there. You could be in the same class as somebody else, but they're still just so happy that you're there, that you're driving, and all they want, every all everybody wants to see is everybody getting a good run and the best out of their vehicle, car, bike, whatever. Um, and that's absolutely everybody. We we um, we we had an issue with a with a clutch hose, um, and I needed to fit an olive. Um, now. It's, this is a two-minute job um, with a bench vice. Um, the issue is 
out on the salt, you've got what you took with you. Um, so finding somebody with a bench is quite an achievement, let alone somebody with a bench with a vice on it. Uh, and the Speed Demon team were there, and they had, they were the record holders from the year before. I think they'd done 460 mile an hour in a streamlined um, car. And yeah, we just said, we see you've got a bench vice over there. Nobody seems to be using it. Could we borrow it for a minute? And this guy sort of had it. He looked around, and bearing in mind everybody's walking around like they're in an operating theatre, carrying laptops. And this was obviously a, a multi-million-dollar exercise. Oh yeah, that's the other thing about Bolivar. There is every we've kind of emphasised the amateur side of it, but there is another side which is huge companies with massive resources. They're there as well. It's it's all human life is there, really, isn't there? Out on the salt, they're, from they're, the one man band to multinationals. That's yeah. the thing. All the drivers are equal. No, yo, no, nobody cares that this this team spent millions and you've spent five hundred quid. That's that's not the thing. You're there. You're doing it. Um, so yeah, they, yeah. As I say, they lent us their their bench vice, um, which saved saved our car. We, we got a couple more runs out of it, purely purely down to the fact they were happy to, you know, just 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 chip in and help. And and so, what's what was the best time that you managed in? Well. Uh, Unfortunately, I never got my one good run. Um, the, the, the only time when things worked perfectly, um, I was doing a tuning run um, where we, we managed to get up to 148, um, which was just over half throttle, um, unfortunately, because um, I was, as I say, I was doing a tuning run. Um, and as soon as we got back from our tuning run, I said, we've got 165 in here very easily. Um, we went back to the start, and that was when the clutch failed for the first time. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when are you going back? I'm not going to ask you if you're going back. I'm just going to ask you when you're going yeah, back. No, we, we are going back this August. Um, we have taken all of the lessons from last uh, last time. I keep calling it last year. It's two years two years ago now. Um, yeah, because in the end, our gearbox actually exploded on the start line on on the very last day of Speed Week, um, which was which was. Yeah, an achievement that we were still running on last day, but you know, but disappointment nevertheless. Um, so we've now got a much stronger gearbox. We have added our turbo now, um, and we've done an awful lot of aero work. Um, and if I don't get over 200 this time, I will be very disappointed. Very. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I was, I was taken by the car when I saw it because I just thought, there's, it, it, it wears its battle scars proudly, doesn't it? It's got a few of them, yes. And I think yeah, it's yeah. the car's got such a story to tell from doing quarter of a million miles in sort of almost daily use and, it, and its origins as a super expensive, the fastest GT in the world, the fastest four-seater car in the world when it was brand new, the year that I was born. And what it does now, I mean... Are you still in touch with the family who owned the car for all that time? Uh, yeah, I, I still uh, I still regularly talk uh, to or have have uh, emails with the the cousin of the of the man I I bought it from, um, who actually remembers the chauffeur taking them down the M1 pre pre um, um, uh, speed limits, and he remembers doing 120 in the car. Yeah, that 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 car has speed in its blood, but way before I got involved. Right, well, it's going to cost money. I believe you have a, a fundraising page on your website, don't you, Ian? I do, yeah. yeah. There's, there's a GoFundMe connection because, obviously, um, we are... The, 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 the budget really is um, stretched to its absolute limit. Um, and, yes, 
anybody who uh, is any position, uh, any position to help us. Um, we have actually lost our main sponsor, unfortunately. Um, I had an agreement in principle, but then the company got bought out, so um, that all fell through. So if anybody wants to see their name on the side of the car, I'd be very happy to chat to anyone about that one. I think short of that, Ian, it's, uh, it's a question of getting to Wendover and putting everything on red. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing if it comes up. <laughs> that would be wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. And I'll tell you what, the best of British when you go back to the Salt Flats later that, this year. Thank you, Steve. Do, you, do, you, do you, please follow the project. You'll come back and talk to us about it, yeah? Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Love to. Brilliant. Right, that's it. Thank you, Ian. That was mega. You were really great. And, I, and I, you know, and I, I genuinely mean what I said. The absolute best of British for you, to you. And we will direct people. The podcast is listened to around the world. We've got, I saw some figures and our fourth biggest audience is in Vietnam. <laughs> the, the first three were really obvious. Britain, the States, Canada, then Vietnam. It was like, eh, <laughs> what? And then sort of France, Germany, but... Around the world, um, so you never know. You do never do know. you mind if I put a link to it on my website? Is that not at all? I will send you the finished article, and then you can host it on the fastest world's fastest Jensen website if you like. Fantastic! Yeah, I've great. now got to go off and talk to people about driving the when, when I've got to be interviewed now about driving the that Merlin engine car. Do you remember that? Oh, okay. The beast. I drove yeah. it. On, I drove it on Top Gear in '97, and somebody wants. <laughs> Somebody wants to interview you about what it was like. It was you know, you, you, just talking to you is making me feel so old. Really? Well, well I remember you on Top Gear. Well, thanks you know, for that. Not, Ian, I'm only, I'm only 55. <laughs> I'm only 55. I'm, I'm still riding, although I did, get, I did get knocked off my BMW. I got knocked off. I got a BMW 1200. This guy knocked me off just before Christmas. Oh, and, you're um, all right. No, not particularly. Well, I, I'm all right. I'm not dead, you know, but I had yeah. like, I had seven broken bones in total. And I was sat on the, uh, sat on the, we're hard though, in Salford. I was sat on the curb and the guy said to me, he said, uh, I'm sorry, mate, I didn't see you. He actually said that. And I said, I looked at this 1200 BMW and I went, shall I get a bigger motorbike? You know, <laughs> this is like the biggest. And I actually said it. So the fact that I was joking as I was sat on the curb trying to pull myself together. That's it for another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. If you want to listen to it again, don't worry, there's always the podcast, or you can listen to it here on Fab. There's a repeat on Saturday. See you next week.